Hey guys, Anna Victoria here, and I'm so excited for you to join me on my podcast, Your Best Life. I'm the CEO and founder of the FitBody app, a fitness influencer, and a personal trainer. Every week, I'm going to have a special guest that will share their unique experience and unique story to share how they learned how to live their best life, even if they're still working on it, since we are all a work in progress. I can't wait to help you learn how to create your best life. Hi guys, Anna Victoria here with another episode of Your Best Life. Today's guest is Dr. Jolene Brighton, who is a functional medicine naturopathic physician and the founder of the women's medical clinic, Rubus Health. She is a leading expert in post-birth control syndrome and the side effects associated with hormonal contraceptives. Dr. Brighton is the best-selling author of Beyond the Pill and Healing Your Body Naturally After Childbirth. And as always, I have my wonderful husband, Luca, here with me. Hi, guys. <laughs> so Dr. Jillian Brighton is actually someone that I got to know about because of my infertility journey. And I swear, every single post that I did, I would get at least a dozen comments of people being like, you need to follow Dr. Brighton. You need to follow Dr. Brighton. And that's the book that you read before going to bed, right? Yes. So I've been reading a few books as a part of my... Uh, trying to conceive journey. And one of them was Dr. Jolene Brighton's book, Beyond the Pill, which, you know, dives into the side effects of, you know, traditional birth control pills and other forms of um, hormonal contraceptives. And it's just really amazing everything that we're learning about the side effects of these hormonal contraceptives. And I think it's something that Every woman should be educated on, you know. I and, think and every every guy should be educated on as I well. I agree <laughs> to know what we go through. Um, yeah, I think that just at least for me and my experience, and I feel like this is the experience of a lot of women um, that, you know, they're told that they have really bad periods or if they are wanting to use a contraceptive um, that this is the only answer, you know, and there's so much more to it than that which she goes into in her book, and we're going to go into in our conversation. So guys, I hope you enjoy. Here is my interview with Dr. Jolene Brighton. Hi, Dr. Brighton. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you doing today? Great. Good. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to chat. This is a topic that you know, I have, you know, had a lot of personal um, experience with in recent years. So do you want to start by just sharing for those of you that don't know about you a bit about, about your background and what you do? Yeah. So I am a women's health naturopathic physician and I started originally, well, a long time ago, I started in dentistry. I have a degree mm -hmm. in chemistry and nutrition science as well. So take the food as medicine very seriously in terms yeah. of what I offer my patients for treatment and supporting them with their conditions. Amazing. And then you have a book that was released in 2019 called Beyond the Pill, mm -hmm. which I am actually reading. <laughs> uh, do you want to tell us a bit about what the book is about? Yeah, well, it's called Beyond the Pill because they wanted to offer women root cause solutions to common hormonal issues beyond just passing them birth control. But I also want them to know there can be life after birth control. So, you know, any one of us is probably familiar with the scenario where you go to your doctor, you have acne, painful periods, heavy periods, you're struggling with really any kind of hormonal imbalance or hormonal issue, and you're offered hormonal birth control. And 
you know, that's a great, you know, solution for some women, but for other women, you know, they want to go beyond that. And in addition, you know, women who've spent years on hormonal birth control have had issues with side effects, issues when they transition off, something that many experts refer to as post-birth control syndrome. And so I wanted to offer women a comprehensive guide to understanding their body, navigating their hormones, and knowing that there are lots of options out there for women. And it's about finding what works best for you, whether that is to go a different way than birth control or be on it and be supported in that journey. Yeah. It seems like up to now, birth control has kind of been the one size fits all to a lot of those issues that you've mentioned. And do you think that's because we're just now learning about the side effects? Like birth control is somewhat fairly new, you know, in terms of we have, how how long would you say the studies that we have are? 50 years at the so most? So hormonal birth control, the trials began in the 1950s. It was introduced into the general population in the 1960s. And then we started to see studies roll out from there. So some of the, mm-hmm. you know, side effects that I go through in Beyond the Pill, some of those studies started in the 1970s coming out. And so the link with gastrointestinal issues, with nutrient depletion, so birth control being associated with nutrient deficiencies. We saw those dating back to the 1970s and more have come out since then. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of funding in women's medicine. So we see that we don't have in-depth studies on many issues, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome to be a few, but also some of the complaints women have about hormonal birth control. So for example, It wasn't until 2016 that we had a substantially large enough study to show that hormonal birth control is correlated with depression. We still can't say causation at this point, but up until then, Mm -hmm. you know, we in medicine said, you know, no, there's no link at all. And it really is because the studies weren't high quality. We didn't have that data, despite the generations of women complaining about that same side effect. Right. And so it it does seem like what I've noticed, and even just being in the fitness industry, is that there will be so many, you know, anecdotal um, experiences that, but it's like the masses are saying, hey, this is happening to me. But if there's not a study to back it up, then the medical field really is like, well, no, that's Mm -hmm. not a thing because we don't have studies for it. Yet there are so many women experiencing these horrible side effects. Do you feel like that's kind of the cycle of how? things, how, how do we get funding and how do we turn these problems into things that we can study and find a solution yeah. for? Is it, is it people speaking out and saying, Hey, and not taking no for an answer or absolutely, else? you know, uh, PMS, which so many of us just regard mm-hmm. as like, yeah, women get PMS that, mm-hmm. that wasn't even accepted until, you know, a few decades ago as a diagnosis when it comes to something like PMDD, which is, um, you know, some people, a simplification is to say it's an extreme form of PMS, that doesn't even have an ICD-10 code yet. It's, you know, it's been diagnostic criteria in terms of the psychiatry world, but it wasn't until very recently that the World Health Organization was like, we need to adopt an ICD-10, a diagnosis code for this. So it does begin. I mean, that. How do you know what what question to ask as a scientist by listening to what's happening? And there's something. There's a disconnect between the science and the clinicians. So 
one thing is clinicians don't have time to be digging through all the journals. And, you know, as my good friend, Dr. Sarah Hill uh, highlighted, she's like, most clinicians are not in the journals that are talking about these side effects and these issues. And in research, it's regarded there are statistically insignificant outliers. So there's the, okay, these people went through the trial, they, or we did this study, and here is what is statistically significant and what, the, what we were trying to answer. But things happen outside of that. People have different reactions, different experiences. And that wasn't the focus of the study. So researchers expect there to be more of this gray area in terms of how people will respond to different medications, birth control being one of those. Yet clinicians, the way the, the science really gets distilled, distilled down to them is they're like, there's either a study that says yes, or there's a study that says no. And outside of that, unless the entire community really accepts it to be true, we don't accept that woman's story to be true in some ways, which is dismissive of women and their experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got generations of women, for example, complaining about mood-related side effects of birth control. It's a cited top reason of why women leave birth control trials. It's also in the package insert. And yet in 2020, you still have doctors saying, it's you. It's not your birth control. I don't care if you started the pill and a few months later you felt depressed. You need an antidepressant. It's not that medication because there's no study to prove what you're saying is true. When it comes to evidence-based medicine, there are studies. Those are fantastic to have. There's also clinical experience. And this is something that mm -hmm. I've really seen in evolution over time where doctors and clinicians have, you know, forgotten one of the best teachers in medicine is the patient that sits across from them. And when we have right. thousands of women who don't know each other having the same exact story, we need to listen to that. Right. And do you think that, so for the women that are experiencing really horrible PMS or PMDD, um, let's say they're not on birth control, okay? Mm -hmm. And they haven't gone that far to see a doctor about it. What do you feel like is the underlying root cause? Do you think that it it has anything to do with the environment we live in today and all the toxins and the chemicals that could be endocrine disruptors or mm -hmm. messing with our hormones or is it something else? Yeah, well, I think that's definitely a variable and a factor and we have to pay attention to the impact of endocrine disruptors. So when we say, you know, toxins, I'm always careful when we say like toxins and chemicals because within right. the human body, we make toxins, the byproducts right, right. of our metabolism and <laughs> everything's a chemical, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a glass of water next to me, technically a chemical. Yeah. Um, but with that in mind to say, you know, endocrine disruptors specifically, this is really a new frontier and it is something where I'm always really cautious about, you know, being on the wrong side of history where there are people who are so adamant that like, no, don't worry about this. If you talk about, you know, these endocrine disruptors at all, you're just scaring people and there's no great hard data. Right. And historically speaking, we didn't have great hard data on DDT either. But then history showed us that it wasn't as safe as we thought it was. There was a time, you know, if we know that our environment has chemicals that have the potential to dock on our receptors, our hormone receptors, and those hormone receptors exist everywhere in our body, then we do have to question, are they having any kind of influence? But, you know, with most conditions, it's multifactorial, which is the thing that is so hard is that I think we so often want to say, oh, it's this one thing. And it's rarely ever just one thing. So when it comes to PMS and PMDD, they're cyclical, just like our hormones are cyclical. So 
yes, there is a relation there with our hormones. And for each woman, you know, the root cause of that can be a bit different. Maybe she has an autoimmune condition. And because of the autoimmunity, we're seeing shifts in cortisol, stress hormones, and sex hormones as well. For other women, they have got issues going on. They have poor bowel movements and clearance of their estrogen via their bowels, allowing it go, to go back into circulation and making it, you know, what is called estrogen dominance or what's the diagnosis code is estrogen excess, where we've got more estrogen than we were planning on dealing with due to the reconjugation, the reactivation of estrogen in the bowels. And so those are just a couple of examples. But the thing to understand too, is that the way we present with symptoms, especially mood symptoms, there's a whole lot we don't understand in terms of could these mood symptoms, you know, why is it her and not her? Why is it one person, you know, they take birth control, they, they get an IUD and they have extreme mood swings and panic attacks and depression. Yet another gal, same day gets it placed. No issues. Like something more is going on. And that's where I think it talks to the bio-individuality of how the person is interacting with their environment and then how that expresses. Mm -hmm. I've actually had the same thoughts through my infertility journey of, you know, I lead a very healthy lifestyle. I don't go to an extreme. I'm not like beating my body into the ground with working out. Um, but why is someone else who has a more extreme lifestyle, you know, they're able to conceive with no problem or getting off birth control right away. So it, do you think that, like you said, it just depends on the individual and their specific environment? Or do you feel like there is something linked to um, whether it's infertility or having these autoimmune disorders? Yeah. Well, I mean, when we're talking about fertility specifically, we knew, we know there are links between inflammation and autoimmunity and cases of infertility. You know, we're, we just do not have the science right now to completely understand why yeah. women, why one woman can be exposed to the same exact variables and have no problem conceiving. And yet another woman, you know, it makes all the difference to her. It's, you know, another issue with like hormonal birth control. Why is it that one woman comes off and she's able to get pregnant right away? So, you right, we all hear this um, from our doctors. I remember being told this, don't worry about your fertility. As soon as you come off, you'll be able to get pregnant right away. Well, that's true for some women. Some women, it can take up to three months to get their period back. Um, in cases of Depo-Provera, it can take up to a year to really get your fertility back. And that's not saying that birth control has made you infertile, but just to understand that it can delay the time to conception. Doesn't mean that like you won't be able to conceive, but these are the kinds of conversations that really we need to be having rather than saying, no, don't worry about it. You'll be able to get pregnant right away. I mean, we see we see women who get pregnant while they're on birth control. So there are women who get pregnant. Right. There are women who get right. pregnant immediately following yeah. it. And then there are women that, you know, it can take longer. And it's important to understand that a healthy, reasonably young female, I always hate saying young because like in medicine, they're like, once you get to 35 and I'm over 35, they're like, yeah, you're not so young anymore. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> uh, but with that, you right, know, the average right. female, the average couple, nothing going on, it's going to take them six months to be able to conceive. And so this is something that I've had to educate a lot in my practices. Women come in, they're like, I got off birth control. I, you know, I'm infertile. I've been trying to get pregnant for three months and I can't. And I'm like, well, hold on. On average, it'll mm -hmm. take, you know, people about six months to get pregnant. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything's wrong, but because they were told, oh, as soon as you come off, you'll be able to get pregnant right away. And, right. you know, maybe when you start at 15 and if you came off at 18, 
maybe, but there's, you know, it's usually a little more complex than that. Yeah. I think that the expectations that people have around conceiving is something that um, we're now learning. Like you said, that it really takes six months. You know, we were told up to a year. And when we got to the year mark, that's when we were kind of like, okay, like maybe we need to see someone. But that first six months, you know, in the first year, it was really hard to just sit there twiddling my thumbs because my entire life I've been told, oh, you know, my mom, I'm one of seven children. Oh, yeah. So you had different expectations as well. (laughs) Completely. Yeah. So one question I have in regards to autoimmune um, disorders and whether it's infertility or any of these things that we're seeing and, you know, studying and um, trials are coming out more and more about. Do you think that this is because we are becoming more in tune with mental health or do you think that it's because there's actually arise in these cases? It arise in autoimmune cases or infertility cases? Um, I mean, I know those are two very yeah. different things, you know, but so let's just say autoimmune. Do you think that, or like PCOS, mm-hmm. you know, like, is it that we're seeing a rise in these cases or are we just listening to women more? And they've all, they've always yeah, had So them. I think that you're hitting the nail on the head right there is that we are seeing new generations of doctors who have been far enough removed from the idea of hysteria, which by the way, was still in some, you know, medical books in the 1950s, almost 1960s. So and that's not to say that your doctor believes in hysteria, but it is something that, you know, I think about as a clinician, okay, the doctor who was taught that hysteria was an acceptable diagnosis, trained a doctor who is now overseeing residents um, that are in their training. But we are seeing that women's health is being taken more seriously. There are more studies that have shown us about medical gender bias, how women are more likely to have their pain dismissed and not receive adequate care. Women were, uh, you know, there are studies that have shown that we're more likely to die of heart attacks, to be dismissed uh, because you know, we're being told that we're just anxious. We stress too much. We need to go home and, you know, have a glass of wine and take a bubble bath or something. And so I think that newer generations of clinicians are listening to women more. We are getting advancements in our understanding. So, you know, at one point in history, I mean, I re I remember, uh, early in my medical career where PCOS, it was women with PCOS are overweight and they have metabolic syndrome. Now, here we are, you know, more than a decade later, and it's like, actually, not everybody with PCOS is overweight. There's lean PCOS. And, and, you know, this is something that like in my training, my, um, in my gynecology classes, they were very clear. My professors were awesome to say, this is our current understanding and this might change. So please don't think that what you learned today is going to be true tomorrow if new research comes out. And it takes doctors being humble enough and curious enough to change that position and to change the way they look at things. Cause I still hear a doctor say, well, she can't have PCOS because she's not overweight or there's no test for PCOS. There's no way for us to actually evaluate via blood work. And I'm like, well, we can look at androgens. We can look at insulin. We can look at inflammation and these other variables, but we still don't know what causes PCOS and what causes things like endometriosis. But certainly we are listening to women a whole lot more and there is a whole lot more awareness. And this is some too. And yeah. really quick, can you, for those that, that are listening that don't know, oh, what is great. PCOS? I'm so glad that you asked that. Because that, yeah. see, this is why we need to have these conversations. Otherwise, yeah. I'm just out there being right. like, I all know what this is, right? <laughs> PCOS is polycystic right. ovarian syndrome. And this condition, there's three criteria that really go into diagnosing it. 
Um, and with it, we, we were thinking for a long time that it was like, okay, it's just insulin dysregulation and inflammation, but we don't see that insulin dysregulation in all women. But with PCOS, the hallmark symptoms is that we have anovulatory cycles. So you're not ovulating. You have androgen excess. So you have too much testosterone and there are cysts on the ovaries. Now I want to say that that was the criteria. Understand those are not truly cysts on the ovaries. They're actually follicles because your body's trying so hard to ovulate. And what we've understood classically is that the, in these women, when insulin goes up, insulin stimulates the theca cells within the ovaries, and that causes excess androgens. And that will present as irregular periods, acne, uh, and acne is usually cystic acne, but it can be milder, um, hair loss on the head, hair growth on the chin, chest, and abdomen. And so these women are often met with hormonal birth control prescription because birth control is really good at controlling those androgens. So you don't have symptoms, but we have to ask why, because PCOS is associated with infertility, much like endometriosis is. And for some women with endometriosis, it takes more than a decade to get diagnosed. Now, endometriosis, for people who don't know what that is, it is a condition in which endometrium-like cells, so endometrial cells are what line your uterus, that's the endometrium. They're, it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. And those are ending up outside of the lining of your uterus. And they can be stimulated by estrogen in the same way. And they can bleed just like your endometrial lining does. And they can end up in different places. So I mean, as wild as having it in your lungs and you cough up blood, which is scary, and it can actually be endometrial tissue, it can also end up in the abdominal cavity, in the bowels, in other places, and it can be incredibly painful. But not everybody has pain, which is the tricky thing, because if your doctor believes the only way you can have endo is that you have pain, but you're having infertility, that may be missed. And you can have infertility, one of the big reasons is because you can have adhesions. So literal scar tissue blocking the ability of egg to meet sperm. So does that all make sense? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, there are people who are very critical, like influencers should never talk about health. They should never talk about all these things. However, right. I, I disagree in that everybody has a right to share their voice. Everybody has a right to share their story. We never know who is going to heal by hearing our story. And it helps us heal right. in telling our story. It creates that connection. And really, we now have social media and we have these platforms where women are sharing their stories and other women are waking up to like, wait a minute. So it's not normal for me to have X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and mm -hmm. then other women come and say, no, I thought that too. And this is the testing I got. And you see these amazing communities of support. And so women now know to advocate for themselves. I rather than, right. you know, there's with PCOS, uh, it can take years. I actually want to touch on something that you said yeah. a bit ago, uh, which I really appreciate is that you think that people should influencers or just people in general should Absolutely. share their stories. And when I, you know, I've always been, you know, once we decided to finally share about our infertility and trying to conceive journey, I've, I've been pretty open about everything. Um, in one particular case, I shared how, so I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. I was put on mm -hmm. Synthroid and um, I've been managing my thyroid levels through that and they've been great. Uh, but through my IVF cycle, I was put on mm -hmm. birth control and it, it skyrocketed my uh, my 
thyroid. Yeah, your TSH. And my yeah. my TSH, yeah, exactly. And um, my doctor is like, oh, okay, we're going to need to double your Synthroid dose. And, and I just shared about like, you guys, like, I can't believe that birth control affects my thyroid mm-hmm. this way. It was just news to me. This is my first time going through this experience. And I just thought, well, I'm going to share this, okay? And in my caption, in my post, I was just detailing like, hey, still th- going through my infertility journey. Um, they put me on birth control. It messed with my my TSH, my thyroid levels. Um, kind of the end, I wasn't really connecting the birth control to my infertility journey, but I had an, a female OB come on my post and I don't know if she got tagged, um, but she freaked out. Oh. She told me pretty much how... I don't remember the exact words, but how horrible it was for me to be saying that birth control was causing my infertility, how inaccurate that was, how irresponsible it was of me. She even went on her stories and did an entire like rant about me saying that. And I'm just like, first of all, that was not like she put words in Mm -hmm. my mouth. Like I was never connecting those two, but I really felt like that's really horrible for a medical provider to be kind of discouraging me from sharing my story like and spinning yeah. my words you know when that wasn't what I was saying because I genuinely I don't I don't know if birth control causes infertility all I know is that I was on it for 12 years I went off and I'm you know was still on my trying to conceive journey not saying that those two are correlated but this is what my story is so I appreciate that you say like people should share those stories because I had such a negative experience with, you know, so, and, and again, that's only one, yeah, one but at person. The same so time, that's not it's to- like, how hard is it to, okay. So first let me say this. When women struggle with infertility, they feel inherently broken, no matter what words you share with them, because so much of our identity kind of hinges on us being these fertile creatures. And when you want a baby, right. I know I went through this because all my 20s, I was like, I don't want a baby. Yeah. And then when I got <laughs> in my 30s and I wanted a baby, you want a baby now. Like when it- yeah. It takes over it your hits. life. Yeah. And yeah. that is such, that like my heart just breaks for you because to be in such a vulnerable place to share that you are struggling with infertility and then to have somebody react to you in that way and then to take to your stories. I'm not, I'm not um, any stranger to people grossly mis- manipulating my words um, and manipulating what I say. I actually have OBs out there that uh, will say um, oh, she says that birth control causes infertility and in everyone. I'm like, I've never said that we have, I've never said we have a study to show that birth control causes infertility. I have put out some hypotheses in terms of like, this is what might be going on. The biggest being that we use birth control to mask symptoms of PCOS, endometriosis, and other conditions, which means delayed diagnosis. And those are associated with infertility. There's a lot we could talk about in terms of why is it that women come off of birth control and believe that birth control caused their infertility. And we may very well have a study in the future that says something differently and says, well, in this certain situation, but as of right now, we don't have that. So firstly, you know, that I really take issue with that, like you, you are a human. This is something that gets forgotten. You are a heartbeat on the other side of that account. It is not just a handle, but you are a heartbeat. And we have to remember that, that these are people and that it's not her place to police you. So the way that could have been handled better is let me drop in and give you a little bit of education around this rather than shaming you or anything. 
And, you know, even saying like, yeah, you know, I've seen patients who say this as well, and it may be due to X, Y, and Z, but there is, um, I've seen this and it troubles me. I refuse to participate in an us versus them uh, kind of community. I'm not going to build my community on hate, on shaming, on any of that. And yet I see people who are licensed healthcare professionals who are building entire platforms based on, guys, here's this thing that I believe to be misinformation, sometimes taken completely out of context. Let's go attack them. Let's go after them. And that I'm like, listen, as healthcare providers, we cannot claim to be inclusive when we attack at the first like scent of somebody being not like us or thinking that they're different than us. And how does that translate over into your patient care? I find that really disturbing that a licensed medical professional would come on and publicly shame you and then take to their platform to shame you even further. And that is sadly a missed opportunity in educating people. And I can only imagine what other people were thinking when they saw that person commenting in such an aggressive way. Like you have the right to always share your story. You're not a licensed healthcare provider. So we don't expect you to get all of the scientific facts 100% accurate. And really I get tagged in people's posts when you know people will say things that are not accurate. And I'm like, I always say, you know, I agree with you that it could seem like that or I understand how it can seem like that. Yet here's what we know to be true. And I think that this goes back to what is really lacking in medicine, especially women's medicine, is humility to be that... I'm not the boss of your body and I am in no position to know how to live your life better than you or to say that your journey is somehow invalidated because you misstepped in some perceived way. I'm just like, I can go off on this forever. Yeah, it really... No, it, and it really appalled me in the moment because I, I do care so much about presenting only science-based information, but like I also am sharing my story. And if those two don't align completely, like that's not me trying to spread misinformation. Like I'm just sharing my story and I welcome any constructive criticism. You know, like I want those comments. I do have several OBs that have followed me and have engaged with my infertility journey and they're so sweet and gracious. So I do think that that is the majority. Unfortunately, I just had that one experience that just really kind of shocked me. Well, and let's talk about your thyroid in this. So for women who are like, could this be related to thyroid? So in my book, I have an entire chapter dedicated to thyroid health and thyroid is so crucial to fertility, but not just getting pregnant, maintaining the pregnancy and having a healthy baby. So before, so why does your doctor give you Synthroid? Let's back this whole thing up. Okay. TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. What your brain says to your thyroid. Your thyroid then responds by producing T4. T4 goes out into circulation and you convert it into T3. Main sites of doing this, liver, gut, but other cells will do it as well. T3 is our mood, our metabolism, our menses, our gut motility. It's involved in so much stuff. So if you are freezing cold, losing hair, have dry skin, you can't poop, you're uh, you know exhausted every day, you have joint pain, we start looking at thyroid dysfunction. Are you not producing enough? Are you not converting enough? Are you not making it at the cellular level? Now, we do make a little bit of T3 from our thyroid, but it's not the main place. You got to convert it. So why do doctors give T4? So if your TSH is 2.5 or higher, so that's one marker, it's what your brain says to your thyroid, then they're going to uh, prescribe Synthroid or Levothyroxine, a synthetic T4. Why is that? Well, 
because that will help you get pregnant and it will most likely help you stay pregnant. And we know from studies that T4 is what crosses the placenta and that is what's going to help baby. They've done cohort studies where they've seen, they've had moms, they're pregnant, they had insufficient thyroid hormone. They followed those babies for 16 years. Well, not babies at that point. And what they found (laughs) was that they were significantly behind their cohort in terms of motor skills and uh, cognitive development. That is to say, this is how important thyroid hormone is and why doctors have it. And yes, for everybody listening, doctors put it as part of a screening exam when you get pregnant. They do um, manage that and it is part of screening. So I screen when women are like, I have a problem uh, conceiving. Let's look at your thyroid. I personally had a miscarriage because my thyroid was mismanaged. This is also something I think is important in sharing your story because when I shared that a couple of years ago, how many women were like, oh my God, me too. And I had no idea it could be related to my thyroid. But because the trouble is, is that your PCP might look at your thyroid and say your TSH of three is fine. Then you might get pregnant and that TSH jumps up to 10, but you're going to go 10 to 12 weeks Mm -hmm. before you see an OB who would put you on a medication. So there's a gap in all of that. So with relation to birth control, with hormonal birth control, and you can find this, anybody, if you're like, I, I want to myth bust on Dr. Brayton, go buy the nurse's drug handbook. And you will find it in there with the prescribing of birth control that it does alter your thyroid labs. Now, what happens? It increases thyroid binding globulin. So while you're on hormonal birth control, binding proteins elevate and those gobble up free hormones. You only use free hormones. The bound ones are not bioavailable to you. So while on hormonal birth control, we've got studies and we've got books for prescribers that say there will be alterations in thyroid labs in some women. And what we see is elevated thyroid binding globulin. And you can also see elevated total thyroid hormone. Now, if you don't understand how thyroid works, then you conclude, well, your thyroid looks great. No, it's free hormone you're using. So a TSH will shoot up because your brain will scream at your thyroid and say, we don't have enough thyroid hormone. Every single cell in the body needs this. And so that is why we can see a TSH goes up in some women while on hormonal birth control. And they may need more thyroid medication. And, you know, I have talked with OBs who've also said that they see, so uh, I've, you know, partnered with reproductive endocrinologists on cases and they're like, yeah, I see that if thyroid, if TSH shoots up while she's on birth control, it's probably going to shoot up when she's pregnant as well. And so I know I've got to monitor that a little bit tighter. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's really helpful. And it also makes me think about another hormone that's important in pregnancy, progesterone. (laughs) So this is something that in my TTC journey, I became kind of like, um, I don't, I don't know if I can say it was a scavenger hunt, but just trying to figure out what hormones are off, what ones I, we, you know, we need to get in check. I created an Excel sheet of all my labs each uh, time we tested them. Uh, progesterone was one that I actually requested to test mm-hmm. myself. Like they didn't ever test it. Like I did a few IUIs and um, during those cycles, I would go on um, uh, day 21 of my cycle. So seven days after mm-hmm. ovulation and my progesterone was like seven mm-hmm. and eight. And I was taking progesterone suppositories. Um, And so, but again, like 
A, first, let's talk about what progesterone is, why it's important. And I'm also curious to hear why you think that doctors aren't automatically screening for this each month for women that are struggling mm-hmm. to conceive. So progesterone, it's a lovely hormone <laughs> and it's only produced <laughs> yeah. after ovulation. So um, as you said, seven days after ovulation, we tend to test five to seven days after ovulation. So understand if you're a woman with PCOS, you might be ovulating on day 18 and we might have to move that out. You might be ovulating um, you know, on day 10. And so that might look more like day 17 of your cycle. So this is very individualized. If you're trying to conceive, you're probably using LH test strips to see what day that you're fertile and that's easier to count. If you're not, you kind of got to work backwards from like seven days before you expect your period. And so um, with that, so we have to ovulate so that a structure called the corpus luteum forms in the ovaries. That produces progesterone. Progesterone helps us feel chilled out, calm, in love with life. It's a diuretic. It's great for the brain. It also helps you use thyroid hormone at the cellular level. It does a whole lot of great stuff. When we don't have enough of it, that's where we can really feel those PMS symptoms. We're bloated. We are uh, retaining water. So we're feeling puffy. Women will say, oh, I gained like five pounds like before my period. And um, and usually that's a bit of an exaggeration. Usually they're like, okay, it was like a pound, but it could feel like five pounds. I mean, <laughs> I'm not even five, right. five. So if I put on a couple pounds, it feels like quite a bit. But there's right. also the irritability, the insomnia that can come up. There's a lot of symptoms that could come up because again, we have receptors for these hormones on every system of our body. So with progesterone, doctors don't usually test it because you have to hit that specific window. Although I do know reproductive endocrinologists and OB-GYNs who will test this in women who are trying to conceive, or once they have confirmation of a positive pregnancy test, then they will test it to know if we need to replace progesterone. Now, the trouble is, is that when you're using, so if you're on hormonal birth control, just don't even bother testing progesterone because it better not be there. (laughs) There's no progesterone in hormonal birth control and you shouldn't be ovulating. So, you know, if you're on the pill and these other things, sometimes with the IUD, women will still um, ovulate, but even then it's, it's not really worth your money and your time to be testing it. Uh, so with that though, when we're using bioidentical progesterone, serum progesterone really won't detect that well. It's very hard to actually uh, detect progesterone when we start supplementing with that. So that's another reason why it won't necessarily um, get tested. But it is something that you know most doctors that if if you become pregnant and you can't maintain a pregnancy will come in with progesterone supplements, um, not, not supplements like you got buy over the counter guys. So don't, don't do that. Right. Someone just asked me today, like about, Oh, if I get pregnant, can I just buy some progesterone cream off of Amazon? I'm like, no, <laughs> you need a prescription. You need your doctor to oversee you. And, um, if you're using bioidentical, we, you know, there's, uh, we tend to compound it because we want to know that you're getting the same dose in every suppository that you're using. It's really important for maintaining the pregnancy. So kind of going back to your background and about how you got started. So what inspired you to pursue a naturopathic degree versus a traditional? Oh, that's a great question. So that one's actually uh, (laughs) just recently someone else asked me that there was a student and they're like, how come like you didn't go the traditional route? And I'm like, well, so my background, I was actually getting my uh, master's and I was studying molecular nutrition and I was in the lab being a super big nerd. So I have an extensive science background. 
And I looked, I actually had a full ride scholarship. I was going to get my PhD in nutrition science at UC Davis. And, you know, around that time I was like, I'm doing this research and yet I can't actually get the research. This is when I was like, wait, it takes how long for the research to get into a doctor's hands and actually implement change in their clinical practice? Right. Like I can actually create change if I'm working with people, uh, you know, as a clinician. So I actually, um, so a long time ago, I was actually going to be a dentist. I got bit by a dog. And that's what <laughs> made me say, okay, I'm going to get my master's in nutrition, go a different route. So oh I started studying for the MCAT and I was getting ready to go the MD route. And then I found naturopathic medicine. And what it really appealed to me is that in this medicine, I was going to be able to leverage nutrition. So I was shadowing medical doctors who were like, nutrition doesn't do anything. I don't refer to a registered dietitian because like, that's just a waste of time. And I'm like, I don't want that. I want to build on that nutrition. And I want to be part of a philosophy that respects the body's innate ability to heal and ask why and ask why before treating. I also loved about naturopathic medicine is that I'm trained in pharmacology, but I'm also trained in herbs, supplements, and nutrition so that I can look at, okay, what is the best approach for this individual? And if I prescribe a medication to a patient, what may I need to be shifting in their diet or supplementing? Or what herbs do we need to be avoiding in that? And that is something that, you know, most, the majority of medical doctors do not have sufficient nutrition education. And so that's something they really looked at and I wanted to do differently. I, I love uh, a lot of medical doctors um, out there. And then there are others that are just really rigid and don't even care to you know, look at this, what gets called now root cause medicine of like, what is really underlying all of this? And, you know, as a kid, I struggled with chronic gastro uh, uh, gastritis and it turned out so it turned out after years of struggling and my doctor saying, we don't know, and we think that you just have an eating disorder, even though um, they did an endoscopy and saw I had chronic inflammation of my stomach as a child, they still dismissed it until almost 10 years later, the studies on H. pylori, a bacterial infection, made it into clinical practice. And at that point, my doctor tested and there it was. And I was told at 17... You're just going to be on a pharmaceutical for the rest of your life. When I asked about diet, I was told it wouldn't make a difference. And yet at 17, I changed my diet and I no longer needed proton pump inhibitors, which were giving me side effects. I didn't need any of that. And so, you know, it really is born out of like, okay, one, I wanted to help people, but two, just my, my wanting to approach things as holistically as possible. And it's what I call the buffet of medicine. I want to be able to recommend surgery when it's necessary. I want to be able to prescribe a pharmaceutical when it's necessary. I want to be able to help people come off of them. And I want to have a respect for nutrition, lifestyle therapies, so that really the patient gets the best care and the best treatment plan for them. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. I love that because I also, I didn't have an experience that was as extreme as yours, but I just had a lot of digestive and GI issues in my teens and in my early twenties because I was eating fast food every day, multiple times a day. I didn't know anything different. I genuinely, it blows my mind to this day that me growing up in the United States, um, I had no idea that nutrition was linked to anything Mm -hmm. with my body, you know, and how it felt. And I 
went to the emergency room one day because I keeled over. I had such a sharp pain in my stomach. I couldn't stand. Oh, gosh. Like I could only be bent over. I My sister had to drive me to the emergency room and they pretty much were like, oh, well, your digestive and GI systems are just really messed up. Here's a prescription, mm-hmm. you know, the end. And I took it like, you know, I feel like a good, like a good little American. <laughs> I didn't question anything. And I just like took the medicine. And my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, Luca, he's from Italy and uh, like born and raised. And they do things very mm-hmm. different there. You know, their food, the food culture is very different. Um, I think that they treat their nutrition as much more of a part of their the healing process than prescription medication. And, and I really, really want to specify, I in no way am saying that prescription medication doesn't have a place in people's no. Uh, I mean, you were taking does. I take nature thread. <laughs> right. It's, it's really right. I mean, there right. are people out there that are yeah. like anti any pharmaceuticals. And I'm yeah. like, everything has a time and a place in a certain case. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's just that you know, unfortunately that doctor giving me the prescription did not ask at all about my diet or whether I exercised at all. It was just, here's the medicine. And I think that is an issue, you know, like when doctors just automate to here's the prescription. And what I've seen, cause my, I haven't talked about this a lot, but my dad has been on prescription medication since I can remember. And it's always been a cycle of here's one prescription medication. And then now he has to take others to combat the side effects of that one. And I knew that like, I didn't want to go down that mm-hmm. path. You know, I didn't want to just take this and just default to, okay, this is going to be the rest of my life prescription yeah. medication. So that's actually how I got started in my own health. I, I don't want to say my fitness journey because it really started as mm-hmm. a health journey of of looking to food to start to heal my digestive system, my GI system. And it did. I literally went from having so many issues every day to nothing at all just because I changed how I was eating. So anyways, I, I really appreciate that. So what if someone has a doctor who is maybe a bit more rigid and isn't wanting to be open to looking at um, just other uh, ways to treat them, what would you say to that patient? How, how do you recommend they go about seeking treatment? Because um, again, we, we, we don't necessarily want to go against doctor's orders. You know, mm-hmm. like I, of course, have so much respect for them. But if they just feel deep down inside that there is something more what do you say to them? Well, number one is track your data and try to get the quantifiable data about your body. So like in chapter four of my book, I go through like, so if you have the heavy periods, this is what it means to have your period too heavy. So how many days are you bleeding? How many times do you change a pad, tampon, diva cup in a day? Not necessarily a diva cup. That's how old school I am. Back when I used a cup, that was all that was on the market. Um, so yeah. with that, um, you know, understanding pain on a pain scale, scale one to 10, 10 is the worst pain you've ever been in your life. How, what is that pain for you? Does it interrupt your uh, activities of daily living? Can you not go to the grocery store? Do you vomit? Can you not take care of your kids? Can you not get out of the bed, out of bed because of pain or fatigue? And so just tracking that, because when you present that to a doctor, it can be very differently. You definitely want to come with your own curiosity. So. When we are sick and someone's not listening to us or they're gaslighting us or dismissing us, we want to scream at them. That is definitely, that's definitely something you want to do, Um, but it doesn't serve anyone because doctors are humans at the end of the day. So if you yell at your doctor or, you know, you start to escalate things and your doctor shifts their hormones into stress uh, response, fight, flight, or or freeze, they're going to maybe shut down, stop listening to you. 
uh, try to get out of the room as fast as possible, or they're going to might yell back at you. Um, and that exists, right? Like you had it happen on social media, um, where right. like people, some people will bite back because there are people, they're humans at the end of the day. And so, you know, with that, going to your doctor and saying, Hey, these are my symptoms. I have X, Y, and Z. Could it possibly be this or that? So, you know, if it's heavy periods, is it possible that I could be anemic? Is it possible that I could have fibroids? Do you think that like, um, you know, there's a potential that I have thyroid or something else going on? And would you be willing to do tests? And, you know, if they say, no, I'm not going to test. Well, what do you think about an ultrasound to check it out instead of just, you know, passing me a medication or telling me to watch and wait? Um, I have patients who come in and they're like, my doctor told me, uh, they, they tell me like, oh, my pain on a scale one to 10 is like a 12 the day my period. And I'm crawling across the floor, vomiting. And my doctor told me, let's just watch and wait. I'm like, that is not a watch and wait scenario. That is not a watch right. and wait scenario. So if your doctor is unwilling to listen to you or you're just not getting the care you need, then you need to find a new doctor and continue to advocate for yourself. And it doesn't always have to be a doctor. It could be a nurse practitioner. It could be a midwife. Uh, it could be a physician's assistant. So there are other providers out there as well. And so finding someone who will listen to you and take your symptoms seriously. To me, if my patient's concerned, then I'm concerned. I need to look into it. And sometimes, yeah, there is nothing to be concerned about. But until I ask enough questions or do appropriate lab testing, I really can't give them that answer. I think it's also important to understand that it also depends on the doctor you're seeing and who you're talking to. If your doctor is trained that there's an algorithm, you have this, I prescribe this, you're not better, we just give you more of it. Like, or, you know, they take that kind of route, you may need to see a different kind of doctor. And so, you know, I'd like to use the analogy of the sandwich shop versus the ice cream shop. If you go to the sandwich shop and you're like, I want some root cause medicine, right? So if you go to your PCP, you want root cause medicine. Uh, you're you're asking and you're at the sandwich shop and you're asking for ice cream. You're going to get really frustrated. They're going to get really frustrated. You need to go to the ice cream shops. So you need to go find a functional medicine or naturopathic physician to be able to meet your needs. Does that mean the sandwich shop owner is a bad dude? Nope. You might want a sandwich in the future. Yeah. Your PCP is still great. Your gynecologist is still great. But in this day and age, it really takes a healthcare team often for people to get the solutions that they need. Right. Okay. Well, for those that aren't able to see you, I can say personally that I would say that your book is a great place to start to get help by you and at least get information and kind of um, prepare a course of action. Yeah. And if you're, so, I was just going to um, say, if you're looking for a doctor, you yeah. can check out the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. You can check out uh, Institute of Functional Medicine or A4M, the uh, Academy for Advanced uh, Aging. So you can check out those resources. They will have lists of doctors who are trained similarly. Amazing. So the name of the podcast is Your Best Life. And really the, the what I want the message to get across is that there's no one mm -hmm. best life. You know, everyone has a different definition of what that looks like. Everyone has different experiences of what has led them to living their best life. So um, if there's one thing that you feel that has helped you live your best life, what would that mm. be? That is waking up to the reality that we only get so much time on this earth and that we've got to make the most of it. We need to live our truth, live our passion and be unapologetic in how we care for ourselves. Amazing.
Well, this was so enlightening. I appreciate your time so much. Uh, can you let the listeners know where they can find yeah, and follow so you? Yeah, so my main hub is drbrighton.com, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Jolene Brighton. And then I know everyone learns differently. So we have videos on YouTube as well for the people who are like, I don't want to have to read your 5,000 word article. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Brighton. All right, guys, that was my very in-depth and informative interview with Dr. Jolene Brighton. And I would say what really stood out to me is there's not a lot of funding for women's health and just various topics. And, you know, oh my gosh, the fact that doctors used to write off PMS symptoms as hysteria. That is insane. Yeah. And I think it's really important that you guys are talking about it just to bring awareness to the topic. And eventually that will trickle down to more research done on the argument. Let's hope so. And I think it does start with people sharing their stories and not just accepting being dismissed or written off as, you know, oh, well, it's just PMS. You just got to deal with it. Um, and we need to speak up. Yes, exactly. And for those of you that are listening, um, if you do feel like you are having any post-birth control symptoms or severe PMS or PMDD or even struggling to conceive, please do consult with your primary care physician and they can refer you to the best medical professional that can help you. And... The fact that she acknowledges like it is so important for people to share their stories, even if it's not something that is backed up by science today, because it might be in the future. For sure. Like there should be more research and development on birth control, contraceptive methods and literally like what what happens to the female body yes thank you and i mean what's unfortunate is because you're a man people will probably listen (laughs) you know because (laughs) can you go ahead what were you saying can you imagine if men needed to take birth control well hold on because they did start developing a form of birth control for men that's right and you know what happened what happened they were like "Uh uh-uh these side effects are too much to deal with and what what were the side effects moodiness like yeah, mood swings and pretty much exactly what women have to deal with. And they were like, nope, sorry, we're not going to deal oh with this. Oh my gosh, we probably start the war every day. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, maybe it's a good thing. And that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to share it with a friend, spread the word and help us grow our tribe. Please rate and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes each week. You can also follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group, both under the same name, Your Best Life Podcast, to keep the conversation going. You can also send me an email at yourbestlifepodcast at gmail.com and you just might be featured in a future episode. Your Best Life is a Gallery Media Group original production.